Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, we join former senior civil servant Rachel Cartland, who tells me what it was like to be in Hong Kong at the time of the Tiananmen Massacre in 1989. But first, on a recent trip to England, I caught up with Liz Chater, the principal researcher on the life of Sir Paul Chater, the Armenian trader from Kolkata, who founded many elements of modern Hong Kong. Liz Chater recently went to his birthplace to meet the boys and girls from two La Martiniere schools he still funds 90 years after his death in 1926 and who he always thanked for providing him with an education. Sir Paul had Marble Hall on Hong Kong Island and another mansion-sized bungalow in Kowloon which was visited by traveller Elizabeth Bisland and she describes in her book In Seven Stages... A Flying Trip Around the World, published in 1891. I have found this really wonderful traveller's account of a description of Sir Paul Chater's bungalow in Kowloon. The account actually dates from around 1889, and it was a traveller who had been going around the world and had stopped off in Hong Kong and Kowloon. And I just want to read to you how this traveller described Sir Paul's bungalow, because I think it's the the first and probably only description, detailed description, of what the bungalow actually looked like. The traveller says, And he took us to see his docks and go-downs, resounding with the loud clangors of trade, and then through the grass shadowed with banana trees to this lordly pavilion set on the crest of many flowering terraces, its pale yellow outlines cut cameo-like against the burning blue of the equatorial sky. On the right is the naked side of a hill, all deep-tinted buff warmed with red, and everywhere else a sea of satin-leaved tropical foliage. The centre of the pavilion is a great banqueting hall with domed roof, 30 feet above a tessellated pavement. The walls are frescoed in the same deep cream colour of the exterior, touched here and there with blue and rose and gold. Twenty lofty arched doors give on to the veranda, from whence beyond the roses of the terrace one sees the glitter of the green waters of the harbour. At each end of the banqueting hall opens a drawing room set with mirrors and lined with divans. Beneath are tiled bathrooms needed in this hot climate after using the tennis courts and bowling alleys. Here his guests come, come by their twenties and fifties, and feast splendidly on high days and holidays, on hot starlit tropical nights. It is like the sumptuous fancy of some splendid Roman noble proconsul of an eastern province. The pavilion, for the moment, is in the hands of workmen, so we may not dine there, but we do dine with him in his townhouse, eating through many courses, drinking many costly wines, and served by many tall celestials in rustling blue gowns. <laughs> Quite a poetic writer, this, this traveller. Um, so where did you find that, Liz? I found it in a very obscure little traveller's diary, basically, of someone who'd done a round-the-world trip. I was so struck by the fact that they had actually taken so much time to describe Sir Paul Chater's bungalow, which really is more like a mansion you begin to sort of envisage where the great domed hall was in relation to the exterior of the of the building and you 
just look and you think, well, you know, there are arch windows there and you can see these people almost having their sumptuous dinners. And you can also envisage the King of Hawaii, you know, when he came to visit Hong Kong on his world tour back in 1881. And he actually had lunch with Sir Paul Chater in the Kowloon bungalow, him and about 150 people. And now reading this, this lovely description, you can see how he fitted these people in and they weren't busting at the seams in this house. You know, this house was huge, massive. Entrepreneur, trader, uh, we could class him as a founder of, of modern Hong Kong, really. Sir Paul Chater was originally an Armenian trader who came very young from Calcutta. But when we look at where his bungalow would have been in Kowloon, now he was also very much at the forefront of any kind of early development in Kowloon. But where would his bungalow have been? His bungalow would be situated now next to St Andrew's Church because the vicarage actually for St Andrew's Church was built on land at the end of his garden or towards the side of his garden, which was huge. There was a huge area of land space, really, that was allocated to, to the property. So, and you have to bear in mind that that end of Kowloon at that time in the 1880s wasn't developed I mean it was a barren land and so he threw his lot into a place where he was taking a chance Now Sir Paul Chater came to Hong Kong as an 18 year old, he had lost his father early on and he was uh, one of uh, a number of children and he came to join an older sister and her husband in Hong Kong but what we're going to do today is go right back to his roots in Calcutta because he was originally from India. He would then go on to, well, let's re reel them off quickly. He went on to found Hong Kong Land, Wharf, the dairy company, the tram, electric, coal, the ferries. I mean, I don't think there was a business in Hong Kong that he wasn't part of or touched in some way, either as a founder or co-founder or director. If the director's list didn't have his name on, then it was considered not to be a particularly good investment. <laughs> he was for 32 years, which is by far the longest. He was for 32 years the chairman of the Hong Kong Jockey Club. He was also uh, a major philanthropist, including for the University of Hong Kong. He was great friends, of course, with another major Hong Kong businessman, Hormuzji Modi, and good friends with him, and they were investing in China ponies, I think. Oh, yes, yes. They, they both um, really, really enjoyed horse racing. Chaita started off with a stable first, and then he became more involved on the stewarding side with the, uh, with the jockey club. So the racing side of it was sort of passed over to Hormuzji Modi. He tended to name his ponies Rose something. There was always Rose in the name somewhere. And then unfortunately when Hormuz Modi died, Paul then decided to come back into horse racing in a very proactive way and took back the ponies and st restarted his stable basically. And so he was successful before he went into becoming a steward. And then he immediately went back into horse racing and became successful. As you can see, I mean, he was absolutely integral in so many aspects of Hong Kong. He was a real 
diehard Hong Konger. His birth date is 171 years ago. It's September the 8th. It is. And uh, you recently went to Calcutta to actually mark his birth. Yes. I had been invited to go by his old school, actually. It was La Martiniere School. I had been invited because originally, because I was actually going to go for their Founders Day, they'd asked me to go as the lead researcher and really probably the only major researcher on the life of Sir Paul Chater to participate in the Founders Day for both the boys' and the girls' schools of La Martiniere in Calcutta. And when they knew that I was coming, they realised that actually this bus that they were doing, they could probably get done in time. And so we kind of sort of all worked together so that the bus could also be available for unveiling on his birthday on the 8th of September, which was an amazing feat of, well, just technical brilliance, to be honest, by the sculptor itself. So he or she, did they do a good job of how Sir Paul looked? Yeah, it was a great job of collaboration, really, because the project to do the bust was instigated by the Indo-Armenian NGO, Friendship NGO, which is based out of Delhi. They've got people who are running it from Delhi and also out of Yerevan in Armenia as well. And they are passionate about Armenian history or Armenian connections with India. It's a you know, non-governmental organisation, it's non-political, it's non-religious, it's just love and interest between the two countries and trying to pull things together and trying to make things better between the two countries as well, be it on a, a Facebook page or maybe a, a photo exhibition or a concert or whatever, anything that brings the two countries together so that people learn that there used to be, years ago, a big trading connection between the countries Apart from being an illustrious pupil of La Martiniere School in Calcutta, what is Sir Paul Chater's connection with this school? He actually was is their benefactor. The school was founded by Claude Martin. Claude Martin, the French founder of La Martiniere School in Calcutta and Lucknow as well. And later on, many, many years later, Sir Paul Chater became the one that saved the school from what was almost certain closure, really. Um, in the early 1920s, he donated in two tranches of donations a total of 11 lakh rupees, which just saved the school and has enabled the school to continue to this day both the girls and the boys school but it was it was i think it was um, actually donated to the boys school as well and they have never lost their admiration and respect for him for doing such an admirable thing as donating such a large sum as it was then to saving his old school. You began researching Sir Paul a number of years ago and from that now you were then invited to to make some speeches to uh, La Martiniere school children among other projects that you did while you were there for 10 days in September. Yes yeah I feel I I mean I just feel very privileged and very honoured to have been invited to go there They'd got a little bit of knowledge, but they hadn't really fully understood, I don't think, how much he had done over the years and for so many and his vast array of business uh, involvements. So through the speeches that I gave, both during the, the speech for the bust and the Founders' Day for the girls and then for the boys at La Martinia School, I gave three very different speeches covering three very different aspects of 
history that relate to Sapul Chaita. Now, are these children ethnically Indian or are there also ethnic Armenian kids living in, in India, uh, you know, generations on? As far as I can, I'm aware, uh, the majority of the, the, the kids that go to the, the two La Martinia schools are Indian. But what I do know is that if there are Armenian children who are coming up, say, through the Armenian community from the Armenian college in Kolkata, they will automatically be able to attend La Martinia. La Martinia have very strong and close and very fond ties with the Armenian community. In both my commemoration speeches, I listed a few of the old Armenian children, or who had been children at the time, who'd come through the schools and gone on to bigger and better and greater things and it's nice to look back and just cover where these Armenian children have ended up and one particular chap who was called Avatum he ended up becoming a doctor and ended up being with the Indian Medical Service and fought out in Africa and Uganda and was highly decorated and he had his education at La Martinia school so many kids that have done an awful lot many barristers La Martinia have um educated that have Armenian heritage in their in their backgrounds. Liz, I've been able to benefit from your research in previous programmes from 2009 onwards on Sir Paul Chater. But today, what I'd like to do is really focus in on his Calcutta time, you know, the La Martiniere school. Now, how come he went there? I remember, you know, as to say, his father died early. There was a number of children. Things were tough for his childhood. Yes, things were very tough. His father died in, I think it was 1853, and then two years later, his mother then died as well, leaving 13 children, one of which was Paul Chater. And he was then uh, educated at La Martinia School as a foundationer, as someone who was basically put in there because I don't think the family had that much money available to them at the time so he went in about 1855-56 and stayed to 1864 and from what I've been able to find out so far he was academically he was very good uh, sporting wise he was very good he loved cricket and also one of the other things that uh, has recently been found out about him is that when he was there he passed the surveyors examination in La Martinia school and the thought of him becoming a surveyor or going into the surveying department of Calcutta is quite extraordinary now when you look back and think really what he had done with his life whilst he was in Hong Kong but clearly he used the knowledge that he, he gained whilst taking that examination to help him in his job when he was in Hong Kong and sounding out how he was going to do the prior land reclamation. You know, he was often seen sitting in a sampan in the middle of the harbour with what looked like a fishing rod, but actually it was, you know, a, just a, a stick and a, and a rope with a weight on it. He had a plumb line, he wasn't fishing, and he was making calculations that he was using so that he could work out exactly how much depth the harbour needed to be so that he could bring or bigger ships could eventually come in once the land reclamation had been completed. Fishing perhaps wasn't his sport, but everybody thought that that's what he liked. <laughs> so, I mean, he really was... Um, I mean, he was uh, quite... Uh, 
I mean, obviously a highly intelligent man. He was also uh, could really see into the future in terms of Hong Kong's reclamation, in terms of how what Kowloon could bring forth. And also in 1893, ahead of the acquisition of the new territories, the agreement mm. with Beijing to also expand into the new territories to create that as part of the British colonial territory. Mm. He was at the forefront of that. Well, actually, yes, he was. And I think that's probably been slightly overlooked. He instigated the thought about acquiring more land because he was aware that Hong Kong was quite vulnerable to attack from various aspects from China. So he actually put it forward and, and, and wrote several letters and articles to the governor and the British government suggesting that they ought to look into land acquisition as a protection for Hong Kong so that they were a little better covered than they, they were at the time. He felt that they were very vulnerable. When you're doing projects like that, going to Kolkata, going to Hong Kong, does it sort of connect you more with your Armenian roots? Oh, yes, absolutely. I love, I love going back. Oh, it's, I mean, this trip was the first in uh, several years. It was lovely to, to be part of the bust. And in fact, I helped the Indo-Armenian administrators when they were with the sculptor and they were organising, uh, he, he was carving the bust. And, and thank goodness for modern technology because they would message me photographs of the, of the clay bust as it was being done. And I would say, no, the forehead's a little bit too high or a little bit too short or the eyes aren't quite right or the ears need sticking out a bit more and and so <laughs> something would be tweaked by the the sculptor and then I you know half an hour later I'd get another f photograph and yes we'd agree on that and fantastic I mean all this this process normally you know 20 30 years ago would have taken months to do but by the wonders of you know modern technology we were able to um, really crack the bust out uh, between us and it was a real collaboration and I must emphasise just everybody worked so well together. It was just a joy. My thanks to Liz Chater talking there on her recent visit to La Martinier Schools in Kolkata, the birthplace of Sir Paul Chater. Former senior civil servant Rachel Cartland, who's been on the programme before, came to Hong Kong in 1972. She wrote about her career in her book Paper Tigress, A Life in the Hong Kong Government. Here, she tells me about the atmosphere in Hong Kong after the Tiananmen Massacre in 1989, but also how last governor Chris Patton was the first former politician to become a governor. Yeah, and I think that was a, a big surprise for Hong Kong. They'd never seen anything quite like that before. Uh, Macleod himself was a bit of a break because he came from the diplomatic service, whereas in previous times, people like David Trench came from the worldwide British colonial service, which had been a big deal in the days of the old British Empire and then the Commonwealth. But as you got into the 70s, that really was winding up in a major way. It largely wound up. So then they turned to the Foreign Office for Governors and at last with Chris Patton took this step of sending a major political figure. And I remember hearing Douglas Hurd, who was the Foreign Secretary at the time, saying rather tetchily in a radio interview on RTHK before Patton arrived, well, the Hong Kong people have always been saying that their voice isn't heard and they don't have a major figure, and now, now we're sending you one. 
and that was certainly the case. But was it by intent? I mean, I remember the, the general election and Chris Patton was uh, a Tory MP, a uh, Conservative MP, for the seat of Bath, which he lost. So was the idea of, oh, well, we'll give him the Hong Kong governorship instead then? Well, perhaps we won't really know until all the papers can be released and we can see. But I think probably several things came together. Chris Patton was very close to John Major, the Prime Minister, who rather surprisingly had had a general election victory. And he credited Patton with achieving that for him. So he wanted to do something for him. And I think probably at the same time parallel, there were these voices from the Hong Kong business community and so on saying, we want to have a governor who can really make his voice felt at 10 Downing Street. And then the net result was Christopher Francis Patton. Now, Chris Patton would prove to be quite a contentious figure in terms of his relations with Beijing. In Hong Kong, you describe how popular he was in terms of you'd have these rural restaurants that all seem to have uh, a picture of him up. And then uh, you have this line of Patton gave a fresh impetus to the Hong Kong egg tart industry and queues of overseas tourists would form at his favourite bakery. So, <laughs> and, and that of course is something that's still happening I was passing it just the other day and I thought, gosh, well if this goes on into perpetuity he's made his mark in some, some way on egg tarts. Yeah, egg tarts. I mean, governors of course have always had this um, history of having things named after them in one way or another but pattern that couldn't happen for because he was the last governor and you got the transfer of sovereignty. Maclehose, I must say, was always a bit disappointed because one of the things that was named after him was the dental clinic. <laughs> and he, he, was, he, was, he, he did remark a few times that he was rather sorry that his name was going to be on the Maclehose dental clinic and therefore associated with people's minds with pain and, <laughs> pain and discomfort and the visit that they didn't want to, well, did want get, to make. Well, the Maclehose Trail. The Maclehose Trail, extremely popular, and then followed up uh, with for a further, a later governor, David Wilson, by the Wilson Trail. Returning to the last governor, Chris Patton, who was governor here from 1992 until the handover in 1997. What was your job under Chris Patton? Uh, well, I was doing different things, but I was doing broadcasting regulation, which was very interesting because it got lots of different aspects to it, including censorship and so on. And uh, in what sense? Well, we were looking after film censorship and so on, and that could become quite a sensitive issue because politically sensitive films would come up. And we had in our legislation for quite a long time, although we managed to get rid of it, ordinances uh, that uh, had uh, stipulations that if we thought something was politically sensitive, that was a ground for censorship and we shouldn't, shouldn't allow it. Like what? Give me an example. Well, the extraordinary uh, example from long ago uh, was the French art film. We're talking about art films now. This was a Studio One film, uh, The Battle of Algiers. And that was actually banned in Hong Kong because it was considered to be anti-colonial and therefore might somehow arouse... <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, spark something off. But yes, but more recently, as times got closer to the handover and so on, uh, we actually had, of course, with something we haven't talked about, the very dramatic and tragic events of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And that produced uh, both a wave of reaction in Hong Kong, including in the arts world, and also a pushback from the Chinese authorities who didn't want Hong Kongers to be seeing things that they considered too inflammatory on that sort of subject. Describe to me how you heard uh, first of this overnight from June the 3rd to 4th 1989, how you became aware of what was going on. Uh, that was indeed an, an extraordinary period and there was an extraordinary atmosphere in Hong Kong. It was as if we weren't individual people at all anymore. We were like one entity somehow and we had an almost telepathic communication with what was going on in China because of course very little was actually known. Uh, but somehow we gradually moved from hope that China was going to be part of the great international movements in 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall and so on, that there was going to be a similar movement in China to fear that this was not going to be the case. And then resignation coupled with sorrow that something very bad was going to happen in Beijing where the students were protesting. And there was this extraordinary communal knowledge that this would take place, but not exactly when. And in fact, we went out on a boat trip on a Sunday with the son, actually, of the Casey Liu, uh, the Hong Kong exporter whom I'd first met. And when we came back that evening, We'd been talking on the boat, obviously, about what was going to happen. No one was quite sure. But when we came back to Hong Kong on that Sunday evening, every taxi had a black ribbon from its antenna. And as soon as we saw those, then we knew it's come to pass. We obviously didn't know exactly what, but we knew that things had taken this terrible turn that had been foreseen and that something had finally happened in Beijing and people were congregating not in an organized way, not in a, a very great number initially around, say, the Cenotaph. There was then this very subdued atmosphere. And the next day, the Monday, when we went back to work, and by which time we had a slightly clearer idea of what had taken place in Tiananmen Square, then it was an atmosphere of deep, deep mourning throughout the territory. And people have a little bit of amnesia about it now because it became, has become, of course, not quite politically correct to think about that, to talk about that, because it's so much obliterated from the communal memory in mainland China. So some people who now think of themselves as closely allied with the mainland have sort of forgotten about what they were doing on the 3rd, 4th, 5th of June and the following weeks uh, in 1989. But the reality was that there was this completely unified horror and sadness at uh, the massacre of these very young people. In terms of you at that time, you said you were doing a variety of jobs. 
Yeah, and after I'd done the broadcasting regulation and so on, uh, I actually ended up in the social welfare department because the transfer of sovereignty had its own uh, little impact on me because there was no longer a very clear career path for expatriate administrative officers. So I then had the decision stay or go, but we decided we would stay in Hong Kong, although my husband had, was no longer working in the government either because he was quite senior and he had to leave. So uh, they didn't really know what to do with me. And in the end, I went to the social welfare department, going down two ranks, actually. I'd been dealing with only policy work, really, for my entire career. So I was used to just managing perhaps a half a dozen, a dozen people. And then suddenly I had thousands, literally, uh, working for me because I was looking after the social security system there. And so that actually made for a very interesting, quite lengthy period in, during which uh, my career came to an end. My thanks to Rachel Cartland, the author of Paper Tigress, A Life in the Hong Kong Government. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>